you are in Christ, and if you are in Christ, then you are a saint. That means you also are the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance given to him by God the Father. When I read that passage preparing for the service, I was hit with awe. And it really, it it froze me. It struck me. I wrestle, and I was amazed in my wrestling, in my bumbling, in my messing up. Me, I, we are the riches of Christ's inheritance. Give us eyes to see what he has for us today. And this week, I want to impress upon you the fact that you, the saints who are in Christ, have indeed been made holy, and he has freed you from the law. So let me give you the setting for Galatians. The church in Galatia had made a rather major theological misstep. The Galatians had fallen prey to a false gospel. A group we now call the Judaizers were teaching to them that in addition to believing in Christ, they also needed to follow the full Mosaic law in order to obtain salvation. So let us hear and now be very clear on this matter. In verse 16 of chapter 2, St. Paul says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no man will be justified. Keeping this in mind, St. Paul, sensibly distressed by the Galatians' abandonment of the true gospel, is writing to correct their confusion. So look with me at the first half of our passage. We're in Galatians 3, and I'm starting in verse 23, where St. Paul writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, We are no longer under a guardian. There's a lot in those verses, so let's wrap our minds around the law and its role in the whole situation. In verse 23, St. Paul says the law imprisoned us and held us captive. Now, together, these two words that the English is translating here paints a word picture. It's a guard set over the Jews. a soldier guard, so to speak. That's the held captive. And, and the guard is set in such a way as to separate them from the pagan influences around them. That's the imprisoned. So God's gracious gift of the law, in part, kept the Jews safe, preserving Abraham's line so that the promised Christ could come from his line in fulfillment of the promise God had given to Abraham. I want to look at the Greek for the next word St. Paul uses to describe the law. 
He likens the law to a guardian, as it's translated in the ESV. And, and this, the guardian, is the biggest word picture and framework for the whole section we're reading. The word translated guardian in verse 24 is pedagogos. This is the function of a slave. It's a slave set in responsibility over a free-born Roman boy when he leaves the nursery, which was around age seven, until he came of age in his late teens. Now this slave followed the boy everywhere, being generally responsible to ensure that he did not mix with bad company, that he was diligent in his studies, and generally grew up into a gentleman. Now the slave did not instruct the boy himself, but rather limited the boy's freedom and required him to walk the proper paths set before him to adulthood. So St. Paul is likening the law to this pedagogos, the slave, with the main point here. What he's really going after is the fact that the law's role was temporary. Just as the slave was relieved of his duty once the boy became a man, so too the law was relieved of its duty once Christ came. This is why in verse 25, St. Paul says that now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We've grown up. The law was there to walk us on the right path, showing us our failures and also prefiguring Christ so that justification might be through faith. Now this portion of St. Paul's discussion is worth a closer look, especially for us as Christians in an Anglican tradition who use many patterns of life and worship that are grounded in Old Testament law. Now the legal portion of the law was all law. It could not save, it does not save, and in fact, St. Paul quotes in verse 10 of his chapter from Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, none of us can abide by all the law, so the legal portion of the law brings on earth us the curse of God's judgment. At the same time, however, the law testifies to the coming Christ. Therefore, while the legal aspects of the law condemn us, alongside it we are preached the gospel. It prepares us to know, as St. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4, that righteous shall live by faith. Keeping this in mind, if the Old Testament is Christian scripture, including the law, and it is, then it witnesses to Christ and can be appropriately used as a foundation for our current practices where we leverage its witness to Christ. Now, I know that some of you do not always find some aspects of the liturgical traditions we use useful. They may seem foreign and unnecessarily obscure to the extent that you do not understand them. May I suggest to you that perhaps their obscurity is because you have not yet had the chance 
to really see where the law witnesses to Christ. Perhaps it's not a failure of the tradition, but rather an absence of understanding the biblical framework on which the tradition is based. So if you find some of these traditions, nonsensical activity, I encourage you to inquire about them. Learn about their foundation. This is an excellent chance to be more fully instructed, more fully steeped in the Scripture's witness to Christ, to the Gospel. Let our tradition be what it's intended to be, a frequent reminder that God has set you free. I'm also concerned to talk with you today about being too zealous for our tradition, or any tradition, for its own sake. While you might not be focused on keeping kosher and worried about that, there are plenty of opportunities to take law upon yourself. Those of you who greatly appreciate our tradition may also not understand or at times forget the framework on which these practices are based, especially if you ever find yourself annoyed and sitting in judgment when others do not attend to them or, far worse, attend to them in an inattentive manner. Do you not recall that you are all holy? Do you not remember that there is no law righteousness demands of us? Not the law of proper crossing of oneself, of bowing, garments positioned as tradition dictates, of processions processed gravely, of vessels positioned correctly. Now, our traditions are useful when they're used to point to Christ. But if someone shows ignorance of them, and though they and how they aid to uh, how they aid us to live mindful of God's holiness and our own may your hearts be filled with compassion rather than correct them for law breaking encourage them encourage them that they would know the hope that we have in us displayed by our worthy reminders in the liturgy tell them of God's love for them and his work in this world I adjure you, do not make our tradition a law that enslaves you or others, and do not lift anything else up for yourself to be such a law. Lawful obedience to this does not bring God glory. It only causes Christ to weep over you, because you have taken up law which he died to free you from. And that fact, that he has freed us from the law, this is the gem that the Holy Spirit has been preparing us for in these last weeks. Look with me again in 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. St. Paul's one big reality in this entire conversation that you, baptized, are in Christ. At the beginning of this sermon, I called you saints. Here it is. This here is what the Ephesians passage, the passage that reminded us that we are the riches of God's glorious inheritance, was preparing us for. 
I, I learned while reaching, researching this text and preparing the sermon that there are only two humans in the Old Testament where the word saint is used in connection with them. The first is Aaron, who is called the Holy One, or Saint, of the Lord in Psalm 106. The second is Elisha in 2 Kings 4, where a wealthy woman tells her husband she knows him to be a holy man of God. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, a man after God's own heart. Not the prophets, not the judges. But then, then Christ arrives. And oh, what a change. Romans 1, 1 and 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. 2 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, to all the saints who are in Ephesus. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Colossians 1.2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The Corinthians. The Corinthians, for crying out loud, the messed up, backwards, Corinthians, saints. All of a sudden, a word used in connection with two men, only two men in the entire Old Testament, is given to every believer. Why? Because the law pointed to Christ. Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. But the law cannot bring that. So we must be in Christ Jesus. The Galatians passage doesn't use the term saint. And this is a good reminder of the Bible study principle that just because the word isn't present doesn't mean the concept is not there. St. Paul tells us that in Christ we are all sons of God. It is important that he uses sons here because he's going back to his comparison to that pedagogos, that law, the overseeing slave. We are sons in Christ, and sons here is grown, mature. You have passed out of the time of oversight by a slave and have come into our maturity, the fullness of the end of the law that we might be justified by faith. You have put your faith in Christ, and so you are in Christ, and if in Christ, you have been made holy, and you're joined to him so that you gain his holiness. And so Paul calls us, us, saints. And this sainthood overrides all other aspects of our identity, but without obliterating them. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jew and Greek are one in Christ, slave and free are equal footing in Christ, male and female, the only am, did you notice that? Slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male and female. 
the only and indicating their completing connection to each other rather than the opposition seen in the other pairs. But these two subservient to our sainthood and at the same time all these are raised to a greater fullness of their natures. The Jew and Greek are not done away with but become the fullness of themselves in holiness. The slave and free are made more complete, for in our holiness we are free. And yet, as St. Paul so delights in labeling himself, we are slaves of Christ Jesus, his to constantly care for. Our sexuality intended to display the image of God remains as it is, and yet more fully than ever before, displays his image as male and female enter their fullness in holiness. I want to close by reiterating Father Sean's words from last week. This, here, this is a special place. For God is here in a special way with us through his word and his sacrament. You should treat this time and this place with reverence and dignity, for we are in the presence of the living God, the Holy One of Israel. Walk into that sanctuary with reverence. Come and receive the Eucharist as one who comes to the Holy of Holies. But do not come here as though you do not belong here, as though you are filthy or inferior, not deserving his attention. You were once filthy. You were once under judgment and condemned by the law, but no longer. By baptism, you have been made a child of the Holy One, the Most High God, by faith justified in Christ Jesus, this sanctuary where men once entered trembling with fear, ankles bound by ropes so that if they were struck dead because of their uncleanliness, they could be pulled out as corpses. You enter the sanctuary as if it was your father's house, and you a beloved child in that house, because this is your father's house and you are that beloved child. No longer is it a command to be holy through obedience to the law. Now, now it is an assurance. In Christ, you are saints and an encouragement. Saints, live holy lives because you are holy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.